it's a short one this morning. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you to hear your word and to dig into it again, give us open ears and sound lips that we might be faithful to speak and to do as you instruct us. We come together to worship you, and as we look at a series of psalms that teach us about praise and worship, make us better worshipers of you. For some, maybe make us worshipers in truth for the first time, and for others, make us deeper, better, stronger, more consistent worshipers of you. God, we prepare tonight. Many of us are going to uh, this uh, uh, prayer and praise night tonight with members and attenders of 60-some-odd uh, churches in the greater Cleveland area that are part of this thing we call the Greater Cleveland Baptist Association. I just want to lift up those churches in particular right now. Those churches that are uh, serving you and are proclaiming the gospel and growing disciples from, from Mentor to Medina, from Avon down to um, parts on the far east side, uh, the far southeast side down in, in Bedford and Walton Hills and, and, and so forth and so on. God, I, I thank you for these churches. I thank you that you are, are raising up congregations of people in, in, in different pockets and neighborhoods and cities and communities throughout Northeast Ohio. We pray that even as some of them are gathering right now, that you would give their pastors and leaders and preachers words um, to speak faithfully. We pray that the gospel would go out clearly this morning that it would be heard, that it would be received. We pray that you would transform those communities by the power of the gospel being proclaimed from each of those churches. We know you are able to. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're in college, you often start with a, a 101 class. You know, 101 class, um, sometimes they even divide that into two parts. You might do a 101 and a 102 but it's, it's typically an overview class, right? Uh, it introduces you to the subject. Grad schools sometimes do something similar, but it's a 501 class. You know, in a philosophy 101, you might learn broadly about the different branches of philosophy or be exposed to, and, and very brief, be exposed to some of its major figures. You know, in an anatomy 101 class, you might learn all the main components of the human or, or maybe the mammalian uh, body with a basic sense of where the different parts are and, and what they do. You don't get too deep 
but you got to get that overview so that you can go deeper into the subject. In a Math 101 class, you might study all the basic mathematical concepts that are fundamental to, to college math. And so you're, you're drilling in and make sure you understand that algebra and the, the trigonometry in particular. When I was in seminary, grad school, we had a, a particularly brutal variation on, on the 101. At least a lot of people felt it was particularly brutal. Um, in grad school classes, you know, start at 501. Um, but they expected students at the seminary to have a, a robust understanding of the contents of the Bible. You know, basic understanding of the things that are talked about in the Bible. And if you didn't, you had to take a New Testament 500 or Old Testament 500, which if you know your numbering system, 500 is the end of the century that starts with 401. So it's technically an undergraduate class and you get undergraduate credit and it doesn't help you to graduate with your degree. So they're just assuming that you're coming into the school with a basic, well, and some people would say not very basic, understanding the contents of the Bible. And so we'd have these two long uh, multiple choice placement tests that we had to take when we started to see whether we could actually continue in the seminary studies or whether we had to take these sort of rudimentary undergrad level classes first. And, and again, they were just content based. I mean, honestly, I think if you'd read through the Bible once or twice carefully, you probably do just fine on the test. But boy, was there a lot of complaining about, you know, not knowing who the, the left-handed judge was or uh, what about Jehoiakim was was he a good king of Israel a wicked king of Israel a good king of Judah or a wicked king of Judah uh, and so forth and in a way though it, it, even though it comes at the very end of the Psalter Psalm 150 is, is sort of like praise 101 it, it's a fundamental overview of what worship is Psalm 150 is all about praise. And it tackles the subject by giving us the who, the where, the why, possibly the what, and the how of praise. So we've been looking at this short series on this, the last five psalms of the book of Psalms, 146 through 150. They're oftentimes called the, the halal psalms because they all begin with the Hebrew word hallelujah, praise the Lord. And we're going to wrap that up today. We'll have a, a, a special message next week from Lou Bloss, and then we're going to do a series on prayer. But for this morning, we're going to talk about Psalm 150 and its overview that focuses on the who, the where, the why, the what, and the how of praise. So the who. Uh, the, the psalm begins, just like all of these songs, praise the Lord. And, and we could look at we could look at the who question two different ways. And we'll save one of them for later. Uh, we're interested here in the object of our worship. We could talk about the subject of worship, but here we're going to talk about the object of worship. And the object of our praise should be a who. And it opens, again, like I said, with that familiar uh, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And that gives us the who. The who is the Lord. Now, I want to dwell there for a second um, because many of you might not be familiar but when you see Lord that word Lord and it, it's written in small caps like it is here so you see it's not lowercase letters it's small caps like little short versions of capital letters 
that is um, a stand-in for God's divine name. Here's what I, I mean. In English, the reasons why we translate God's name as Lord and style it a little bit differently than any of the text around it are, are, are several. Uh, and what you've got to understand, the earliest Hebrew writing system, probably like most languages, uh, did not have any symbols or characters to represent the vowels. They only had characters for the consonants. And if you think about that, if I gave you a, a, a page of text that I removed all the vowels from, you'd probably still be very familiar with English, probably be just fine reading it. You might have a couple hiccups along the way, but you'd probably figure out the meaning just fine. It, it actually works pretty well. Uh, and so God's name was represented by four characters, and we call those the, the tetragrammaton, which is a fancy word which means four letters. Uh, but, you know, scholars like to make everything, they have to justify the fact that they're important, right? So they have to give everything a cool name. The, those four letters in Hebrew are yod, he, vav, and he. And that's usually rep represented in English with the four letters y-h-w-h. And it's believed that the pronunciation was something like Yahweh. We're not entirely sure. And we're not entirely sure for a couple reasons. On one hand, there's this long history uh, of the Jewish people thinking that the name of God was so holy that they shouldn't even pronounce it. And as a result, instead of saying God's name when they read aloud, they would substitute a title for God, a familiar title, Adonai, which means Lord or Master. And over time, the exact pronunciation was lost from lack of use. And the Hebrew substitution of Adonai became kurios when they translated it into Greek, the Greek word for Lord or Master. And then lots of other languages followed suit. So in English, we translate Lord. But in modern editions, now that we have the printing press and things like that, we found this way that we can style the letters differently so that even looking at it in English, we can know when we see those small capitals, it's God's divine name and not the title. Now, scholars still debate what the, the best strategy is for rendering God's name because it avoids a lot of problems by translating it Lord, but it also creates some others. And I'll give you an example. I, I, I grew up with a, an Indian friend who was raised in a, a Hindu, with a Hindu background. And I remember one time, I, I don't remember why this came up. I think we were just playing some backyard football. Well, I think it was in the front yard, actually. And we were playing some football. And for whatever reason, he asked me, what was the name of my God? You know, this is, you know, a conversation has come up with your kid. And I mean, I'm sure he was thinking about, you know, Vishnu or Shiva or Ganesha or Kali. Uh, but I, I told him, you know, I was kind of confused. Like, my God is just God. Like, we just call God, God. Um, and it was confusing to me. And, and of course, I see, I didn't know that God had a name. I wasn't a Christian then either, unless by Christian you simply mean a person that goes to church. I went to church, but it didn't really mean anything to me. 
But God has a name. And it's a great name. And it, it's something like Yahweh. And, and it either means or was intended to sound similar to something like he is. Or maybe the existing one. Now think on that for a moment. Because uh, the Babylonians or, or the Assyrians might have worshipped Sin or Shamash or Marduk. The Egyptians worshipped Ra and Amit and Horus and Osiris. And, and the Canaanites had Baal and Dagon and Moloch. The Hittites, north of the Israelites, might have turned to Istanu, Sandras, uh, Aruna or Zababa. The Arabs worshipped uh, Manat and uh, Talab in different places. The Phoenicians could prostrate themselves before Reshef or Eshmun. The lists of deities were endless. But for us, there's but one deity. Contrary to all the others, Yahweh uniquely and simply is. He exists. His existence is his own. He wasn't caused to exist. He doesn't bend and change to the whims of history like those other pretenders. As he says to Moses, I am who I am. So he's not just a God. He, he's unique among all of those beings, whether real or imagined, who are called gods. He is Yahweh. No other among them has that name. He has his own characteristics. He has his own traits. His deeds are his own. They're not those of some other god. He has really done things in history and outside our history. There is no other. And so there was something quite right. There was something quite right about my confusion with my Indian friend. Because Christians do generally call their god, God. And, and part of the reason why we can do that is because... There's only one. But there's still, I think, a danger because God can become such a generic term. I don't think it was probably ever a good idea to make assumptions about what people think or don't think about God. But there certainly was a time in American culture when people's default assumptions about what God was like were probably more uh, influenced by Christianity than they are today. I think that's probably a safe assumption. And at least when you were talking to someone, you probably shared some basic background notions about what God is like, even if the person disagreed with them or, or was going off in some other direction. But as our culture moves further and further away from a, a fundamental understanding of Christian truth, we absolutely cannot assume that people know who God is or what God is like. The typical American thinks he can define God for himself. The typical American determines what she thinks God is like and accepts that as her personal truth. And this type of, of subjective and self-centered theology creeps into the church. But brothers and sisters, we don't worship a generic God. We, we don't bow down before a default deity. We worship the Lord, Yahweh, the God who made everything from nothing, 
The God who drowned the armies of Pharaoh in the sea. The God who tore down the walls of Jericho. The God who restored the fortunes of his people. We worship the Lord, Yahweh. We worship the God who is entirely just and yet full of mercy. The God who loves his creation and hates wickedness. The God who instructs and disciplines and comforts and consoles. We worship the Lord, Yahweh, the God who is unchanging and unmoved, the God who is three in one, the God who is Father and Son and Spirit, God the Father who chose a people for himself, God the Son who ransomed a people for himself, God the Spirit who convicts a people to return to him. Yahweh, we have no other gods beside him. And this is the one to whom all praise is due. So when we are talking about God, when we want to tell other people about God, we need to tell them about this God. This God who is calling worshipers to himself. Show people a God who is worth worshiping. Namely the God who is. This psalm then tells us where. Where should we praise God? Uh, it says in the second part of verse 1, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. So the second thing the psalmist tells us is where praise is due. And, and now there's some debate exactly what the psalmist is referring to here, but for simplicity's sake, let me tell you what I think the psalmist is referring to, and I think it's the two abodes of God. What do you mean he has two abodes? Well, the, the first line enjoins us to praise God in his sanctuary. And for the ancient Hebrew, God's sanctuary would have been the, the tent of meeting in the wilderness, or later on the temple. It was the place where God decided to allow his presence to be among his people. God wanted to dwell with his people. That was the plan from the beginning. So if you look to the Garden of Eden, God would walk with man in the cool of the day. He desires to be near those whom he loves and who love him in return. But sin destroyed that. It put a separation between God and man. And yet God was not satisfied to leave the universe that way. And he began on a rescue mission, you, th you might say, to bring himself near to his people and to bring his people near to him. And in the wilderness, as the, as the Israelites traveled from, from Egypt to Canaan, and then later as they made a dwelling in Canaan, God's presence was made among his people in this tabernacle. It was this unique place where heaven just ever so slightly overlapped earth. God's dwelling otherwise was in his mighty heavens. Literally says the expanse of his might. So it probably means something like the place where his power and majesty are on full display or what we'd call heaven. And taken together, the psalmist is effectively saying, praise God everywhere from as low as earth to as high as heaven. For Christians, that takes on new meaning. Just as in the Old Testament, God's dwelling with his people was a mobile tabernacle in the wilderness, John Chapter 1 says that Jesus, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, 
tabernacled among us. It's a very literal translation. It says he, most translations, he dwelt among us. But the word is the word for a tabernacle. And it says Jesus tabernacled among us. And so Jesus was the very presence of God dwelling among his people. And when a person decides to follow Jesus with belief and repentance, he or she is incorporated into Christ spiritually. We become part of his body, the, the church with a capital C. And Jesus is not just a tabernacle, but he's the high priest and he's the sacrifice. Offering himself on the altar to pay for our sins so that collectively, or so that we have direct access to God. And by his spirit, he dwells and makes a home in each one of us. So that both collectively we are a temple, the church, but even as individuals we are like miniature temples. In a way, our bodies are very temples of God. And so we can carry out the praise of God anywhere and everywhere. Why? The psalmist says, praise him for his mighty deeds and praise him according to his excellent greatness. In this series, we have looked at a number of reasons why we are supposed to praise God. Different aspects of his doings or character or heart. They've been revealed to us as things worthy of praise. But here, the psalmist zooms out and looks at the big picture to tell us that Yahweh deserves our praise because of what he's done and who he is. Simply put, we are to praise God for his mighty deeds. One uh, scholar has pointed out that the mighty deeds most emphasized in scripture are probably God's work in creation and his work in salvation. In creation, God made something from nothing by his very word. And it sets him up as the only legitimate ruler over all of creation. He is King Yahweh. But what about salvation? God saves his people. This is what God does. He's in the business of saving his people, you might say. He rescued Noah and his family. He rescued Lot. He rescued Israel from famine and then from Egypt. God places his hand on the scales of history to bend the universe toward the protection of his own people. And in the final culmination of it all, God saves sinners. God takes a people for himself from all the peoples of the world. And he places his hand on history and offers himself as a sacrifice to cleanse us of our impurity and to turn us away or to turn away his wrath from us. That is tipping the scales in favor of a people you love. That is mighty indeed. We can't even fathom the scope of that power. And so Paul writes, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. 
But the psalmist doesn't rest on just what God has done, but also that we should worship him according to his excellent greatness. We should worship God for who he is. And we probably touched on this a little bit in talking about the who this God is, talking about the fact that he is Yahweh and he's unique. But God himself, as he is in himself, is incredible. He is excellently great. And he's worthy of our praise. He is infinite. He knows no bounds. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is immutable. He does not change. He has a saity. Meaning he needs nothing for his own existence. He exists of himself. He is transcendent. He is beyond our plane of existence. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is omnipotent. He can do anything he desires. He is omnipresent. His presence is everywhere. He is omnisapient. He is perfectly wise. What more could we say about this God? Well, we could go on and on and on. If we are to praise God, though, according to his excellent greatness, as the psalmist says, then we better know something about his excellent greatness. And fortunately, he reveals that to us in his word. What we need to know about God to praise him rightly is contained in his word. He reveals himself to us for many reasons, but certainly not least because he wants us to praise him fittingly. And we can't praise him well unless we know him well. So let's make a point of knowing him well. How? How are we to praise him? The psalmist writes, praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. So how are we encouraged to praise God? With with musical instruments of every sort. We have the ram's horn, the, the shofar. It's loud and bellowing call could raise armies to battle or announce a holy day for the entire community. We have the, the tambourine and dance, which were so often used in victory celebrations, particularly military victory celebrations. Some of these instruments, we don't really have a good sense of what they are. The, the artifacts have been lost to history. We know generally that it's a, a string-typed instrument similar to a lute, something similar to a harp. We have some other stringed instrument that we can only translate as a string. We know it's a stringed instrument, but we don't know too much what it was like. We have two different types of symbols, and we're not even sure what the difference was between the symbols, except one maybe was a little bit more melodic sounding, one was a little bit more obnoxious sounding. But we're not even sure about that. Um, some type of piped instrument. I'll, I'll just take, I take refuge as a, as a string player that the strings come up more than all the other instruments here. But I think the, the idea, what we do know is that the worship of the ancient Israelites was very musical. And the book of Psalms was their hymnal. And the Israelites sang. And dance and instrumentation often accompanied their songs. 
I, I've, I've known Christian groups that will tell you that these are the only instruments that should be used in worship, which is sort of silly. Because again, this is, this is poetry, right? This is, this is a poem. This is uh, symbolic and representative, and it, it, it's trying to evoke feeling. It's not trying to give you a didactic list of everything that you can use and not use in worship. The idea simply seems to be to take whatever you've got that can be fittingly used for praising God and praise God with it. Maybe not every instrument is fit for every occasion, but every instrument seems to be fit for some occasion. And so praise God with it. And, you know, let's not forget in that that we serve a God who has commanded us to make art. And that could be a whole other study altogether, so I'm not, I'm not going to stay there. But God wants us to make art. He wants us to be creative. He wants us to lift up song and sound to him. Be creative and worship him with anything suitable for the task. Now we have another who or maybe a what. The psalmist writes, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And, and so in saying another who, but we've moved from the object of worship, which is Yahweh, to the subject of worship, which is everything that has breath. Who is doing this worshiping? Who, or, or what is doing this worshiping? And, and broadly speaking, throughout the Bible, this, this term, everything that has breath, refers to any living thing. But let's focus on the humans for a moment. The birds and the bees will praise God in their own way. But we have a little bit more will, a little bit more volition in the matter of how we praise or don't praise. The psalmist cries out for everything with breath, but we don't see that, do we? So we, we look around the world, we don't see, as much as the psalmist may, may cry out, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, and as much as we repeat it and say it, we don't see that, do we? We don't see everything that has breath praising God. The world is, in fact, filled with people who do not worship Yahweh. They worship other deities. They worship other gods. They worship the work of their own hands. They worship their own pursuits. They don't worship Yahweh. And yet the Bible envisions a time that precisely that will happen. In Revelation uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 14, John writes, And between the throne and the four, he's seen this vision uh, this heavenly vision. He says, and between the throne of God and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll 
and to open its, open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests who are God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, of, uh, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Where will this group from every tribe and language and people nation come from, this group that praises God with all of creation. They are a, a people that need to hear that there is a God who is great enough to be worshipped, who does great things worthy of worship, a God who saves sinners and calls them his own. And so, if we believe that in some ways that, that line, Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, you know, in some ways that call is really a prophecy of what God will ultimately, in the end, bring about to his own good purposes, then what is it that we are doing as part of God's plan to bring about every last thing that is alive, to praise his name, then we need to preach this good news about this good and great God to a dying world. That they might see and they might hear that there is a God who rescues sinners from their plight. That there is a God who is so marvelous, he is worth all worship. And that there really are no contenders. There are no uh, alternatives that even get into the same general playing field as him. He is above all other claimants to that throne. There is none like him. And we trust that as we, we proclaim this good news, because faith comes from hearing, the scriptures teach us. As we tell this good news, God will work mercifully to redeem a people to himself from every nation and from every tribe and from every language and from every people. So that this thing called humanity might praise the Lord. And so we praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father God.
Teach us to praise you well. Teach us to praise you rightly. May we sink deeper and deeper into your truth that we might better know who you are and that we might fall more deeply in love with you and so exclaim your praises more accurately and more profoundly and more emotionally even. And, and that our, our love for you would overflow in the telling to others. And they might hear of your great deeds and your great character and they might fall and worship the God who saves them. Forgive us, God, for not being students of you, that we do not apply ourselves to know you as we ought to know you. And so our praise often falls flat. Forgive us, Father, for the times we have not shared your heart that everything with breath might praise you. And so we have closed our mouth and shut up our breath and failed to tell a dying world about you who are worthy of praise. Give us the boldness and encouragement and confidence in your son to do better. It's in that son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and continue to praise. <laughs>